This is Audio Immunity, a podcast about our body's never-ending fight with the outside world. All right, so Kate, do you want to do you want to roll the intro? Sure. So this week, Kevin picked out this paper. Um, you're just gonna you're just gonna roll right into it. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna start into this. You don't want to say like "Welcome to Auto Audio Immunity" or anything like that. Oh, I just assume that gets tacked on in post. No, <laughs> <laughs> you got to do the whole banter like, "Hey, this is Audio Immunity." Like, I'm Kate. I believe this is what we call the cold open. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so <laughs> okay, so welcome to Audio Immunity. Um, today we're gonna be talking about some interesting new antiviral therapies. So thank you for joining us. I'm Kate and joining me is Kevin. Hello. And Matt. Hey everybody. And so Kevin has been so nice as to supply both of us with uh, adult beverages, uh, which I'm really, really excited about. This, uh, what am I drinking? This winter stout, what is this called? Phantom Punch Winter Stout. It does not taste like vanilla. Matt cautioned me that this would be like... I was actually more worried about the Phantom Punch. Like, I, I feel like the word punch in a beer title scares me. No, but it's like punching you in the face, not like Hawaiian punch. Yeah, it's a knockout. Yeah. It's about Muhammad Ali or something. Oh, it's see, a, I didn't... I can't see the can. Yeah, it so. says Muhammad Ali somewhere on this, but it's actually pretty is good. That vaguely, is that vaguely racist because it's a dark beer and they're talking about Muhammad Ali? No. No? Okay, that's just me. <laughs> Probably not. I on the oh, um conveniently on the other end of that spectrum I am drinking the Snow Wit White IPA from Sierra Nevada <laughs> Brewing Company. So yeah. yeah. So and vaguely, Matt, what are you drinking? I'm not drinking anything. You knew that and you're mm-hmm. just being a jerk because mm-hmm. I'm here at Emory hanging out after hours in this open conference room. So I'm sorry if I'm talking or I sound like I'm in a fishbowl. Well, that's no excuse because Kate and I are both at work and we're drinking. Okay, so. I am not drinking because I'm not at work because I work in a children's hospital and I do <laughs> yeah. not drink in a children's hospital. That is not yeah. allowed. So I work at a primate center and as it turns out, there used to be a happy hour at the primate center. And then it turns out that one of the primate center employees got a little drunk and did some things he probably should not have done. We can't really get the details, but we believe that it was primate related. What so, is it What is it with primate centers and a horrible, horrible behavior? Oh, um, I think just generally, <laughs> this is why they're not existing anymore so much because... Stupid people do stupid stuff. Yeah. That's what we should is there we should put a link to the Harvard Primate Center BS that happened a couple of years ago in no, case we don't our need listeners to. aren't aware of We're it. Good. No. Yeah, it's probably <laughs> best that we don't. Um anyway, that center is closed now yeah. under the direction mm-hmm. of Harvard. Because I think really actually what happened is Harvard just didn't really want to be associated with it anymore. I think it sort of became a little bit too much. Yep, and yeah, screwed a bunch I'm of grass students it. that were working there and it, Kate knows a lot of the people that were involved. Yeah. Um, but yeah. we'll just n- not involved in doing the bad shit. Oh, but. boy. <laughs> I feel like we should cut all of this out. Yeah. Nope. Nope. Not a chance. <laughs> Let's move on. Oh, all boy. Right. <laughs> Speaking of antivirals. <laughs> oh, boy. We'll give Kate a moment to collect herself. <laughs> okay. Anyway, you know, I always figured that we work in such an environment that like doing a podcast would not really bring a lot, wouldn't have a lot of risk to shoulder that mm-hmm. like the phrase don't get fired really wouldn't apply here. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm glad but to see that. I'm, I'm glad to see that we're pushing boundaries. <laughs> don't get fired, <laughs> Kevin. Don't get fired. 
Well, I'm not worried. I do yeah. not know how to transition from there, but... Well, so the Primate Center largely studied viral diseases, of which there are many, right. that we don't have good treatments for. True. True. And so there is a strong need for good antiviral therapies. Mm. Yes. Do you want to? Yes. So, do you want to talk about the paper first, or do you want to talk about the the guy first? Oh, okay. No, no, no. We can talk about that later. So, the antiviral therapies that we're going to talk about today. There's a paper that was published in 2011 that I remember when it came out because it seemed really exciting and really promising. And right now, in 2015, there is a Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign to try to get more money for pursuing this uh, these antivirals. And we're going to talk about the paper and we're going to talk about the crowdfunding. But I will say just as way of introduction, it is strange that the paper, which seemed fairly promising, is now four years later and he's asking for money to continue the research, which suggests to me that actually the stuff that looked promising didn't pan out. But we can talk about maybe what that implies yeah. later. Yeah, sure. So the paper that we're going to be looking at is called Broad Spectrum Antiviral Therapies. And it was published in PLOS One in July of 2011. And so again, that's four years ago, but four and a half years ago. And PLOS One is an open access journal, so you can go ahead and take a look at the paper yourself. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. But it seemed really promising. And I remember seeing this actually at a poster that we went to or at a meeting that we went to. And I was sort of really excited about it. And then nothing apparently has panned out. There's been no publication since this. And now he's going to the public for funding, which... Uh, if you'll recall from our discussion of the immunity project, probably over a year ago now, we are somewhat skeptical about going to the general public for funds yeah, for yeah. this sort of research. Yeah. So right, I, we'll we'll talk about the paper, and then maybe we'll maybe we can discuss whether or not we would, based on this paper, donate money. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Okay. Not to. So I wanted to make one comment really quick. Corresponding author Todd H. Ryder. He's also the man who. Is has set up the Indiegogo to fund this research. His contact email is Thor. I'm pretty sure his initials are Thor because like T H, there might be an O in there and then R mm -hmm. for writer. That is, those are like the coolest initials. That is pretty cool. Excellent, excellent, excellent initials. Okay. Not quite as cool a name as one of our graduate school colleagues whose middle name is literally the. Yeah, oh, that's right. Because his full name is Peter the Sage. So are you sure you want to be doxing him like this? He's a public scientist. <laughs> he is. He, you can look up his papers. His papers are actually really good. Yeah, you can search PubMed for Peter the Sage and you will find You'll some find really it. wonderful immunology science. And we should do one of his papers possible. sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I think I'll I'll just do like a brief introduction on the paper. So the the basic idea behind this paper is that there are many different viruses that can cause disease that we don't have therapy against. So some of these viruses are like viruses that emerge really quickly. So something like Ebola, hepatitis viruses, SARS, and the sort of tools that we have to combat these viruses during epidemics is somewhat limited. Really, there's only a couple of broadly applicable drugs. Resistance forms very quickly. You have to use the drugs very early in infection for them to actually be effective. And so this scientist, Todd Ryder, he developed this idea called DRACO. And uh, DRACO stands for Double-Stranded RNA-Activated Caspase Oligomer. And Which is, let's, let's just interrupt here and yeah. 
yeah. say. That's a pretty badass. Yeah, it's a pretty acronym. cool name. It's a pretty it's cool great. name. Yeah. Although it makes it really hard to Google because when you Google Draco, yep. you get tons of Harry Potter. It's all Malfoy. <laughs> all, yep. all Draco memes. <laughs> yeah. So the idea here is that a lot of these viruses that I just mentioned are RNA viruses. And an RNA virus is a virus whose genome, so that's the um, nucleic acid that's packaged inside of the virus particle. This is what encodes all the proteins. This is, you absolutely need this to, it's what's actually replicated when a virus enters a cell. You, you uh, replicate the genome. Its genome is made up of RNA. So our genomes are made up of DNA. So these are a very specific, interesting type of virus. It's viruses that I myself study. I think they're super cool. And uh, when these RNA viruses are replicating, they make these intermediates where the RNA becomes double-stranded. So they're normally, your, the RNA would be in a cell, single-stranded. It's like what mRNA is. You would get translation, you'd make proteins. But viruses, because they have to replicate this virus, it occurs, uh, you get short sections of double-strandedness. So there's two pieces of RNA that are sticking together. And when this occurs in a cell, the cell can detect it because that means that something that is not host related is there. So there's, it's a signal that there's an invader in the cell because a normal cell would never make a double-stranded piece of RNA. And so he's utilized this idea and he's taken proteins that normally recognize double-stranded RNA and he has made a chimera so that when his protein is in a cell and double-stranded RNA is also in the cell, it will bind the double-stranded RNA and then make a signal to the cell to die. So it induces apoptosis and the cell <laughs> God will damn it, Kate. die. <laughs> yep. We'll get to that later. Yeah. And so... <laughs> What, some of the ideas be so some of the ideas that he's put forth as to why this would be a really good system or a really good drug is that he claims that RNA viruses all will make double-stranded RNA and that the virus has already learned to evolve away from the cellular factors that would stop its replication. So these things that normally would detect RNA and then and then freak out the cell and start making an antiviral response start start trying to fight the virus he says that the virus can evade those those proteins and so his his protein is something the virus has never seen so it will be able to stop the virus more effectively than right and just uh, I'd like to Expand on that a little bit. So th yeah. this idea that using double-stranded RNA as a way to detect infected cells, this is something evolution has already come up with. This The idea that finding double-stranded RNA in a cell is a danger signal, uh, that's been around for a long time in evolution. So flies have systems that detect double-stranded RNA. Am I making that up? No. Nope. Flies do have it, flies right? Flies have it, yes. Flies have it. So our, <laughs> our cells definitely have it. So we've got a lot of systems. Our own immune system Worms detects... Have it. Worms have it. It's pretty old. Won a Nobel so, Prize. <laughs> sort of. Plants maybe. have double-stranded RNA detection. Yeah. So, so this idea of looking for double-stranded RNA as a system to detect infection, that's not really novel, right? This has been around for millions of years. And the idea, just to expand a little bit on what Kate said, is that viruses have evolved many ways of blocking the stuff that is downstream of a normal detection pathway. So in our own cells, when we detect double-stranded RNA, we activate these signal transduction cascades that trigger the production of antiviral signaling proteins like interferons and a bunch of other things in the cell to try to limit viral infection. But of course, viruses have been evolving alongside our own immune responses. And so lots of viruses have evolved ways of blocking those downstream consequences. Yeah. That so, this would in principle circumvent. So 
there are a couple different places in this, I don't know, I guess proposal that I would maybe caution the actual, I, I would caution it like taking it at face value. So the first thing, this statement that most, if not all viruses make double-stranded RNA, I would first call a bit of BS on because it's not true. <laughs> um, <laughs> some viruses make double-stranded RNA, specifically a, a class of viruses called positive sense RNA viruses make tons of double-stranded RNA. There's antibodies against double-stranded RNA, so you can actually detect it in the cells. And so I, I would just say, like, first, only some viruses make double-stranded RNA. Well, don't, Second, don't single... Oh, yeah, go ahead. Before you go ahead, don't negative sense RNA viruses also have to make it? Because in order to, you make the RNA copy, you make the positive sense strand off of the negative strand. Yeah, but you don't have a lot of double-stranded character. So as transcription is going, you have proteins binding to the RNA, separating the strands almost immediately. So the double-stranded character is very, very short and is probably not what is being detected during during virus. So the cell probably doesn't even detect that double-stranded RNA. It's probably something else that the cell's detecting. So, so rigi and the other innate immune signaling proteins MDA5, yeah. that recognize negative sense RNA, you think that they're not actually recognizing the double-stranded character of those molecules? So it's a bit of a complicated issue. And I should say, this is this is like what Kate's PhD is about. So Yeah. So RIGI detects, so the, the literature will tell you that RIGI detects short double-stranded RNA segments and dye and triphosphorylated RNA. So that's mm. essentially unmodified this the unmodified end of the RNA. So like the very, very, very end of it, it can bind to and and um, essentially that's also a modification that's not present in our cells. Usually those uh, phosphates are clipped off and capped. So it's, it's called so like they add like processing. A, issue. Yeah, there's a processing of that of the end of the five prime end. So that's what Rigai binds. MDA5 theoretically binds branched RNA molecules, like very branched, double-stranded character, um, and maybe some sequence-specific RNA molecules. So when negative-stranded viruses infect a cell, so na some negative-stranded viruses would be like rabies, um, Ebola virus, some like pretty cool viruses. And maybe we should say real quick that what the negative versus positive. So all that means is the what we what codes for protein is what we call the positive. Yeah, sense you have to strand. kind of go back a few. I was like, yeah, maybe we should just like <laughs> blow yeah. right by this. <laughs> <laughs> so the so the positive sense is just a strand where there. So if you remember your cell biology at all, there is messenger RNA that the ribosome reads to make a protein. With viruses, we they can either code their genome, the stuff, the thing that actually gets packaged into the virus particle can either be that, which is like directly readable by the ribosome, or it can be the opposite strand. So you know that RNA-like DNA has this base pairing that is really good for replicating and making copies of it, but some viruses package a strand of RNA that can't be read by the ribosome to make functional proteins, but when you make the complementary strand of that negative sense strand, then you have the strand that can be read by yeah. the ribosome. So essentially so. like a positive strand virus, it can be put into the translation immediately. That's actually the first step of its replication. It becomes, it, that strand of genomic RNA is translated. A negative stranded virus needs to go through a first step of having its polymerase make a carbon cop make a mirror image of that RNA and then that can go into the ribosomes and so they're essentially like they're very similar viruses but there's like a couple steps that are done in different orders when they're actively replicating so the negative stranded viruses do not make a lot of double stranded RNA character and that's actually kind of an issue when you're trying to study them because a very easy way to label 
viruses in cells is just to label the double-stranded RNA. When I, th I think that when negative strand, the way that you detect a negative strand virus is when you have mess ups in the replication cycle. And so you have non-productive infection and non-productive and viruses that aren't able to properly infect a cell are then detected by Rigai because they will have mess ups. So they'll have more double-stranded character, but that isn't a productive infection. Can I ask so, a question? Yeah. Is, is replication mess up a technical term? It's called a de defective interfering particle. Cool. I like mess up better. We should keep uh, Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, it is a mess up. There's like, there are names for these particles, but the concept of it is that there, there are mistakes that happen. And so it's kind of cool. I, I think that these sorts of particles are really awesome and very interesting to study as well. But sometimes these, the genomes, when they're being made in the cell. So when we talk about virus replication, we just usually mean like the replication of the genome. That's what a virus does. It puts its genome in a cell and gets more copies of it out. So during this process, you can sort of just mess up the replication cycle and you'll get like weird genomes that aren't the full genome. You get truncated genomes, you get genomes that have weird skips in them and are just these Franken viruses. And these viruses can't replicate properly, but they still can get packaged into a tiny little virus particle and they leave a cell, then they try to enter a new cell and in the new cell, they can't replicate and the, and the host proteins like say like, oh, this looks like some weird RNA. Let's activate. And then the cell activates. So that's important. That's an important distinction for this paper, because one of the things that the immune system has evolved to do is not only if a cell detects this double-stranded RNA, it's not only going to activate proteins that act within that cell mm -hmm. to have antiviral responses. It also will then secrete out of the cell signaling molecules like interferons that will tell neighboring cells that there's maybe an infection happening. Yeah. Whereas this therapeutic, for reasons that we'll talk about in just a sec, this therapeutic would not necessarily trigger those effects. Uh, yeah. It would only act on cells that themselves have double-stranded RNA in yes. them. Yes. So I, so I would just to go back to what we were just talking about, I would say for this therapeutic, the idea that in many viruses, the double-stranded RNA will not be an actively replicating virus that would completely, you would never kill the cell that you have the good virus replicating it, right? So like you would totally miss all of your double-stranded RNA that you see as dead viruses. So this drug would completely miss all these actively replicating viruses, which would be a problem for this actually carrying a disease. Right. And what and so so we've talked about two types of RNA viruses. What about retroviruses? What about DNA viruses? Are they making any double-stranded RNA? That is a because I've I've always heard that question. That is okay. something that many people are looking into. So we do know that DNA viruses activate the RNA sensing pathways in cells. So they activate what you talked about, Rigai, MDA5, and those proteins signal down and they activate all those interferons and all these proteins that stop virus replication. So DNA viruses can activate these pathways. People don't know exactly what it is that activates Rigai. It definitely doesn't need to be double-stranded RNA. But some people believe that during the transcription of RNA from the DNA genomes that these transcripts might base pair. So you would form double-stranded RNA and then you would get the activation of PKR, which is, we'll, we'll have to talk about in a second. So, so like, that would be so as, would, as, as these genomes are going out into the cytoplasm, they're interacting with each other so before packaging? The genomes actually aren't in the cytoplasm for DNA viruses. They would be, it would be the RNAs are in the cytoplasm. Right. Sorry. Yes. The RNA. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I see what you're saying. 
So it'd be RNA transcripts interacting with each other in the cytoplasm as they're being translated, and that's leading potentially to rig eye yeah. activation. And so okay. some people think that you could have you have transcription going from both ends, so you're making complementary strands of RNA. Got it. It's kind of unclear if that's really happening. So one thing, one other thing that I'd like to say before we sort of dig into the meat of what what these molecules are is a, a concept that I don't think is necessarily obvious to a lot of people, and that is the fact that the proteins, the the uh, molecular machines in our cells that are doing a lot of work, proteins are largely modular in their construction. So it turns out that you can take certain regions, we call them domains of proteins that have a certain function, and you can hook them up to the domains of other proteins that have other functions, and they will still carry out their own function, and sometimes they have combinatorial effects that are important. So in the case of this therapeutic, we're hooking up this domain from one type of protein. It's called PKR. It binds to double-stranded RNA, or maybe. No, no, uh, and PKR then- binds double-stranded RNA. Oh, for sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So so what we were talking about earlier, RIGI MDA5, that activates interferon. PKR is a different sort of protein. It binds double-stranded RNA, which they say, and then downstream of that, it stops the translation of RNAs. Okay. So, so we're taking the binding domain from PKR, basically stripping out the part of the protein or the gene for the part of the protein that is able to bind to double-stranded RNA, and we're hooking it up to these other domains that are capable of inducing a apoptosis in cells when they get close to each other. So the idea here is that you are going to have, if you have a a double-stranded RNA molecule, you are going to bring a bunch of these Draco molecules together because they're going to bind the double-stranded RNA with the double-stranded RNA binding region of PKR, and that's going to bring these caspase domains close together. And when those caspase domains get close together, they trigger a different signaling pathway that causes the cell to kill itself. Uh, And that's normal part of apoptosis signaling is the activation of these caspases. And what we're doing is sort of artificially activating the caspases by bringing them together through binding to double-stranded RNA. And we may have talked about this in the past, but one of the interesting things about the different caspase molecules involved in apoptosis is, uh, is that they actually activate each other, right? So they activate themselves and they activate each other through transphosphorylation and autophosphorylation. So basically, uh, they're, they just require clustering. Cleavage, not phosphorylation. Say that sentence over again. Cleavage, cleavage of the phosphate. Um, Nope, not even cleavage of the phosphate. Oh, no, you're right. It's an inhibitory domain, isn't it? It's, yeah. So so the the caspases are uh, proteases. Uh, Caspase comes from a uh, cysteine-activated protease or something. Um, And so these are proteases that will actually cleave each other. And the the full length protein is not active. When they get really close together, they've got a little bit of protease activity. And so they can cut each other up. And then once they've been cut in half, essentially, then their protease domain is super active. And then it'll go start chopping up all kinds of other proteins. Yeah. And then they just destroy everything. And then the cell dies. DNA, ribosomes, they basically just chew up the entire cell from the inside out. But the, the point that I was trying to make was it's a normal function of these caspases to basically become activated only when they're in large clusters. So really all you have to do in order to induce apoptosis is to get these things to be all in the same place at the same time so that they can start to act on each other. It's not like you need a huge signaling cascade in order to get there. Right. Two things. One, to beef up that point, if you just overexpress, if you just like put in a plasmid to overexpress caspases that will activate the caspases just by like having a lot of them in the cell and then secondly matt you just said apoptosis i know i'm gonna flip back and forth intentionally (laughs) through this because at the end of this i'm going to talk about the actual concerns around the pronunciation of apoptosis Uh or apoptosis 
And uh, so I'm trying not to lose any listeners as we work yeah. our way through this conversation. Yeah. Okay, carrying on. <laughs> so these these Dracos, what they've done is they've taken the, the PKR piece. So they've taken the piece that binds double-stranded RNA from PKR, and they've hooked it up to this caspase piece. So this piece that would cut off the cell and kill it. So the idea is you have double-stranded RNA, you cluster, you activate the caspases, the cell dies. Now, <laughs> so I think that this is a cute idea. I think it's a it's a cute like I, I don't I don't say that in a in a negative way. I think it's like it's cute. It's like it's clever. Clever, I think, is a much better word to have your research described <laughs> yeah. as than cute. Mm-hmm. So, but though it is a, a clever idea, the justification for why you would want to make this molecule that they give in the paper is that if you can combine these two processes of double-stranded RNA recognition with apoptosis, you can circumvent viral evasion of one of these two pathways. So the idea being viruses can evade PK viruses can evade caspases, but we don't think that viruses would be able to evade a PKR caspase chimera. And I would take issue with that logic because the way that viruses evade PKR, so some of them, yes, do directly cleave the protein, or probably, I don't know anything specific, probably do directly cleave the protein or inactivate PKR or try to, or they do dephosphorylate the substrates of PKR that PKR phosphorylates. But a lot of viruses just hide their double-stranded RNA from PKR. So what you've done is you've taken a piece of PKR that the viruses evade, the, the actual detection of RNA, and now you've put it with caspases. I would also argue that caspases are not necessarily antiviral. Many viruses activate caspases for their own life cycle. So I'm not entirely sure like on its face why this is necessarily a evolutionary workaround or specifically antiviral. I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, so I think timing is critical when you're talking about something like cell death, right? So I I totally agree with your PKR argument. I think that a virus that has evolved to evade detection by PKR, which I'm certain there are. Oh, uh, yes. I I mean, all sorts, all sorts. Sure. So some of the claims on the site that we'll be talking about a little bit later are basically that you could be able to design this thing so that it could target any virus at any time. Um, And maybe what he's really talking about is getting away from things like PKR, getting away from the proteins that he's already used and finding a different way to target, you know, viral replication into intermediates and all those things. But that's a really broad idea uh, and not really covered under the purview of the research that he's doing at the moment. Mm -hmm. But uh, so I I completely agree there. As far as the caspase thing, I, I tend to feel like it's not going to be, I think you're right. Caspases are used by viruses, it's an important part of many viral life cycles in order to implement them. But I think that an improperly activated caspase cascade mm-hmm. would be detrimental to viral replication, uh, largely because if you if you can't predict as the virus in the in the cell, if you can't predict when everything is going to collapse around you, yeah. I think that, that that becomes a little bit harder. So I yeah, totally agree with the PKR thing. The caspase thing I think probably would be a little more robust if he can initiate it when he wants. Let me let me play. I guess this isn't devil's advocate because if it works, he'd be an angel. So let me <laughs> let me try to play the the champion of this technology because I'm at this point I'm really not convinced by it. But let me make an argument for it, which is that though Kate, I agree with you that this is maybe not a panacea. Which, just as an aside, there's a video that I'm going to link to online where he literally calls it a panacea, yeah, I know, which is I know. really That's what annoying. I thought you were going at. I was like, oh. 
<laughs> but at the same time, like viruses have, evol- have evolved all kinds of strategies to evade innate immune detection. And many of them are downstream of detection. So viruses will destroy, uh, as Kate mentioned, they will dephosphorylate substrates that should be phosphorylated. They will destroy adapter proteins. They will uh, inhibit all these downstream molecules. And anything that a virus blocks that's downstream of detection in the normal innate immune signaling pathway, these Dracos are going to get around that because all they care about is just binding to the double-stranded RNA. So though I agree with you that it's maybe not work for every virus that makes double-stranded RNA, it should work for a lot of them that have evolved to hit downstream parts. And then the second part about the caspases, the immune system already uses apoptosis as an that, antiviral strategy. That was my other issue with this. So, I was like, why you think that they're blocking the dissociation, like the dissociation of mitochondria? Like, Well, so, so NK cells and, and CD8 T cells, they all induce apoptosis as an antiviral strategy. So the idea here is that we're basically going to make these small molecule T cells, or that's maybe too grand a term for them, but they're basically, the idea here is that we're going to use a small molecule to do what NK cells and CD8 T cells try to do to virally infected cells Mm -hmm. and using only double-stranded RNA as the target. So any cell that's making double-stranded RNA, we're going to force that cell into apoptosis. And though some viruses might use apoptosis, as part of their viral life cycle, as Matt mentioned, the timing is really critical and the viruses haven't evolved to be able to accommodate apoptosis at any time. So if you flood a system with molecules that are inducing apoptosis in any cell that has double-stranded RNA, it may not work for everything. It's not a panacea, but it should work for it. I mean, in principle, it could work for a lot of viruses. So, so can we can we touch on the flooding the system talk? Because I think there's a critical component of these treatments or these yes. proteins that he's making uh, that we have not yet talked about. We've talked about the two functional domains, really, but there's actually a third, smaller functional domain attached to these chimeras. So what we've talked about so far is the PKR domain, which allows you to detect the double-stranded DNA or RNA, excuse me. We've talked about the domain that will assemble all the caspase molecules so they can cleave each other. But the question really is, how do you get these things inside a cell that's totally viable in a way that is robust, reproducible, and make sure that wherever the virus is within its host, right, mm-hmm. that protein is going to find its way into the cell. And so I hope that someone has a better grasp on the TAT strategy yes. as far as uh, I, I assume, Kate, that you have a much better thought on this than I do. So, so could you explain that? I hadn't actually really, I think I had heard about this once or twice, but I hadn't really like connected all the dots of what it what the actual implication was. But essentially, okay, so they're trying to get a protein across a cell membrane. It's pretty hard to get inside of a cell. Usually you need to trick the cell into letting you in. So you need to bind a receptor that's then internalized, or you need to have your own membrane and your membrane can fuse with the cell membrane and then you can kind of like trickle in your own, your own contents into the cell. But what they use is a a protein tag that apparently is membrane permeable <laughs> and so they they claim and they show in the figures that if you have this tag on your protein that a us uh, that some percentage of your protein is able to enter the cell yeah and, and so I, I, this is this is not a this is not a novel idea i mean so this no. the tat protein is one thing there's also a protein called antennapedia that has had been described many, many years ago. I started to look into it because there were a bunch of projects in graduate school that I thought would it would be really, really helpful if I could get proteins across cell membranes. Yes. And I'll just say that every single time I proposed this 
to my PI and as a strategy of doing experiments, because if you can get proteins directly into cells, like that's really, really useful. Every single time I propose this as my PI, he's like, yeah, that's a stupid idea. These things never work and they're a pain <laughs> in the ass. Yeah. So I'll just throw that out there. I don't know anything beyond that. And, and the thing is, normally you would just transfect in DNA or RNA into a cell. And that's how you get proteins to express uh, within the cells. The cell actually makes it itself. Um, but you can imagine, especially something like this, where if you don't want to use nucleic acid, having the protein just enter the cell uh, passively uh, would be really helpful. So my guess is that it has something to do with like, so these, these, uh, these amino acids that they, that they attach are, are charged. And I think that they must make some sort of like something that looks like some sort of like charged micelle, like something that kind of looks like a transfectionary agent and allows it to enter. But I don't know how it happened. That would be a guess. That is, I made that up. That is a guess that I just took. <laughs> right. The, the reason that it, and it's, you know, I have no proof of this, but the reason that I bring it up and I think that this, it's an important part of this story is that they do eventually assay in live animals that they inject IP. And so an IP injection of these things, and you know, maybe we'll walk through the figures, maybe we won't, but an IP injection into an animal is basically an injection into the abdominal cavity. And so someone once told me as I was learning mouse work that IP injections are just IV injections for cowards. <laughs> and that's um, probably a little bit true, at least, where basically eventually stuff that you inject into the peritone uh, peritoneal cavity will get filtered by different things in the abdominal wall. And, you know, there's macrophage populations and things. But eventually what you find is that it will wind up in the blood. And so one of the really critical components to whether this treatment would work in large animals, especially uh, even larger than mice, obviously, is that it actually permeates tissue that the virus would be replicating in. And so they make an attempt at that in this paper, and they look at three different organs. One is the liver, one is the kidney, and one is the lung. And the reason I bring out or bring up the three organs that they're testing is that the lung is sort of the organ that everything first shows up in, right? So people talk about pulmonary embolisms where you have a blood clot somewhere in the system and it winds up in the lung, and that's a real problem for people. And that's because the lung is highly vascularized, everything gets pumped through it. So basically anything that you inject IV is going to wind up in the lung, including T cells and B cells, if you're ever doing an adoptive transfer, yeah. even though those T cells and B cells have no business being. It's there, important really. to note that if you like when you take out a lung to look into it, you're not only taking out the tissue that is actual like lung epithelium, you're also taking out all of the blood vessels and capillaries of which there network. are many associated with it. So, right. Yeah. So the second organ is the kidney and the kidney, as you know, is highly vascularized and serves as a filtration point, right? So you've got huge amounts of blood flow. Similarly to the lung, when you take this out, you're going to have huge amounts unless they really, really carefully, you know, flushed these they things. Didn't. But I almost think that you can't. And then the last is the liver and the liver is literally the the blood filtration unit. Yeah. So any that's protein where toxins that's go to going die. to be right. So any any protein that you inject IP uh, that is going through massive circulation in the blood, you're going to find huge amounts of it in the liver probably for the longest period of time because that's just sort of how the liver functions. Yeah. So I would be much more interested to see like a muscle biopsy or a lymph node or even a spleen. Like, but the spleen still you're going to get huge amounts of blood flow it's all connected, right? So mm -hmm. you really need peripheral tissue that's not contaminated by huge amounts of blood in order to show that these things are systemically disseminated. Well, or, you know, what you could do, they have, they have protein tags on these things. They could do 
tissue sections yeah. and stain it and then look where it is. Because if you do a lung section, you're going to be able to tell if it's associated with the blood or if it's associated with the actual lung epithelium, yeah. right? Sure. I so. will say, though, in terms of like sites of viral replication, lungs, liver, kidney is a really good place to start. I mean, because yeah. you do have so much, especially RNA viruses, replicating in the lungs, liver, and kidney. Agreed. But I'm not even sure that the protein is making it into those tissues oh, so no, much no, no, as no. it's just okay. resin yeah, yeah, yeah. in the blood. No, I'm just, I'm saying like, I, I agree that like they do not give enough evidence to support this idea of like systemic spread and penetrance. Yeah. But it, in, but it, it would be a good place. Those are good places to start. Like sure. you, you get two points for trying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that. let's just reference the figures of this paper. Yes. Okay. Uh, because <laughs> basically figures one through seven or eight, there's a ton of figures in this paper. Yeah, they're kind By of the way, say the same thing though. But they're largely the same thing. So yeah. there's a lot of in vitro confirmation that a bunch of different hookups of protein domains. So we talked about PKR as the RNA, double-stranded RNA binding and uh, caspase domains. There's actually a lot of different caspase domains, and there's a bunch of other domains that could bind double-stranded RNA. So he sort of shows that there are a couple of different combinations, and a lot of them work to varying degrees. And then he shows it against a bunch of different viruses in vitro. I think the the thing that Matt just talked about is all the way down in figure... uh, Yeah, I sort of skipped the entire paper. Yeah, figure nine is where they really (laughs) show, first of all, where it is, where these Dracos are ending up uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of organs. But I think the money figure there in terms of like efficacy in terms of like what is it making it to the tissue is it not like all of those are sort of secondary to whether this is effective at treating viral infections and they do start to get at that so in figure 9b and c they are showing viral infections where they've treated with dracos different combinations of dracos and they show that if you don't have in the in the control animals where you didn't treat with dracos you get uh, a lot of mice dying and i think in future figures they show it with different viruses they figures nine and ten uh, are essentially the same with different viruses and when you are treated with dracos you survive much more the the principal problem with these experiments is that they're in starting to inject with the dracos first of all intraperitoneally which as matt said well i don't know if matt said this but most humans are never injected intraperitoneally and I, even IV drug administration is kind of Plus a pain in the rabies. ass in humans. Um, oh, <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, but the other problem is they start the treatment a day before they infect with the virus, yes. which of course in humans, you're never going to do. Nope. Now, to be fair to him, he he earlier in the paper did go through uh, timing, yes. essentially, Ish. but he showed that Ish. in vitro, right? Mm-hmm. He showed- that's not even the problem I have with it. It's like it's in vitro. So what one thing he doesn't ever show is actual viral inhibition. The hypothesis would be that if you have a molecule in the cell that kills any cell that becomes productively infected with virus, your viral titers should drop to zero. And that will correlate with an increased cell viability. And so he shows cell viability, but he never actually shows that viruses are inhibited, which I do think is a bit of a problem. But to, to take the other side of that, what you really care about is, is this thing like if I have if I have a billion viruses in my blood, uh, like, honestly, I don't care if I'm alive when I would have been dead otherwise. But see, what you're thinking is that cell viability correlates to recovery. No, to I'm, me, I'm talking about just the in vivo experiment. correlates to cells learning how to grow again. You can become persistently infected with a virus that no longer uh, gives you CPE. RNA viruses, this is why I'm so afraid of, of viruses when I'm in the, cell, in the tissue culture room and I make my lab go through these great lengths to make sure there's no contamination because certain viruses can infect your cell lines and no longer cause any sort of cell death, but your cell lines are persistently infected. And this is how we even like 
maintain viruses and culture. But so, what I care about most is if a, if an animal is infected with a deadly virus, does it die? Oh, I'm talking about these um, these timing experiments that Matt's right, right. talking about. Yeah, but I think the, the bigger thing would be, can you infect a mouse with influenza or some other virus that is going to kill it? And then after it's infected, treat it with these drugs and reduce mortality. Yes. Or even reduce morbidity. Like whether or not this is, I mean, ultimately like the predicted function, I agree with you entirely, the predicted function should decrease viral titers. But for a therapeutic, we don't care about titers necessarily. We care about, is it actually treating the infection? And he sort of has some little evidence for that, but it's preliminary. Can we, like, do we agree on this? this, I I agree with that. I I wish he had done... in these animal experiments and in these in vitro experiments, I wish he had done some sort of like interferon treatment or a very common antiviral drug it was ribavirin, like a, a ribavirin treatment or a specific inhibitor to kind of show how these drugs compare to known treatments. That was something that I, I really didn't like. Mm-hmm. I wish that there was more because we have a lot of these... I mean, like, there are so many bar graphs looking at cell viability. <laughs> yeah. So many bar graphs. There's a lot um, of bar graphs, and they don't, they're they're blown up not, way too big, and they could have done this in much less space. You're not entirely sure how this really looks like. Also, they're in Christmas another. colors. This is a good season to be reading this paper. I agree. So they're all red yeah, and green. Not if you're, but not if you're colorblind. <laughs> right. Not if you're colorblind. Oh, yeah. For some reason, I thought colorblindness was red-blue. Nope. Nope. It nope, is definitely, definitely red-green. Yeah. <laughs> yep, it is. So you have to go blue orange one thing so what i did what i would like to say is that you know all the criticisms that kate brought up perfectly reasonable and but if this was a a reasonable person if this was (laughs) yes you are (laughs) most of the time uh but so if if i like when i was reading this paper in 2011 i remember when it came out and i was like oh this is really cool and i some of these concerns i i don't remember exactly if i had them but i was like this is cool this is promising as a first study and maybe the next paper is gonna have all of those experiments that we're talking about it's gonna look at if you treat after the initial infection it's going to look at viral titers it's going to look at all these things that was four and a half years ago and nothing has come out since then and now there's an indiegogo campaign which we'll link to because we're nice people but there's an indiegogo campaign asking for funding from the public and this is where i have a concern because if he's four and a half years out from this initial study and does not have the backing of pharmaceutical companies or the nih or some some other body of or some other group of people that are likely to fund this study that suggests to me that there's some flaw that is not necessarily visible that is that we don't maybe necessarily know about it might have to do with the things that kate has mentioned in terms of her concerns but if this was actually a viable strategy i would think that there would be additional data and there would be people clamoring to fund it if there's not that suggests to me there's some deeper problem so i i could play devil's advocate on this one okay so so first i will say I really like interesting ways of creating antiviral therapies. I I think that we should put much more funding into like these kind of clever, interesting ideas that that could be possible like cures or treatments for viruses. Like I would like nothing better than for a, a big reworking on like vaccine development, all that garbage. <laughs> I, I mean, like, I, it's a it's a personal preference. I just find these like much more scientifically interesting. I will say, so I did say that I really didn't like that there was no virus 
replication assay or any sort of anything that was done on the virus side. But what we what was done was all these cell viability assays. And my guess is that they just this lab just doesn't have a lot of money because like all the virus stuff, like if you want to look at virus gene expression, these sorts of assays can become very expensive. Mm-hmm. And cell viability is so easy. So I can see why someone would want to do this. And I mean, I I don't think I don't think that just because there's so many reasons why you this might not have gone anywhere in four years. There could be like a money issue. Maybe there's like a grant issue. Maybe there you know there's just so many things that I I think don't need to correlate or be directly tied to the quality of science. Why you might not get funding. So can I so can I interject there for just a second? So I I actually read this paper and I thought that the idea. I think Kate, you and I are thinking about this similar. I thought the idea was very cool and. And I think it's an idea that potentially has legs, right? You could propose this in a really interesting way. But if you're going to do that and you're going to argue for application and you're going to say all the things that he's saying on the video, there's some really rigorous basic science testing that you have to do. And it looks like he's got some animal capability, right? He's got animals and he's infecting them. Now, there's no outside collaborator. Like it's all Lincoln Labs on the author list, which means that it's all internal. He's got close collaborators that he can work with mycin. If you're talking about treatments, you used two kinds of treatments. One is an IP injection in a mouse, and you injected two and a half milligrams of it per mouse. So you inject a ton, a ton of this protein into a mouse and you show dissemination that, eh, like I said, unclear to me whether the dissemination is actually getting into tissues. You haven't actually shown me that this drug has the ability to get outside of basically the bloodstream where you injected it. The second way that you administered was intranasal. You also did a ton of protein there against uh, an upper airway virus. And so if you were to make this thing work, if you were to force this thing to work, this would be what I would do, right? You do influenza, which is going to attack cells in the upper respiratory system, and then you'll have a mouse inhale this stuff. And he does show some efficacy for that. But if I'm going to expand this idea and I'm going to fund it as like an NIH or government approved body, what I want to see is the stability of this drug, whether it actually gets disseminated, something to back up the grand claims here. Because I do think that the idea has has merit, but you just have to do the controls, but that's, right? You I just mean, have to show the basics. But that's yeah. that's what additional funding is for, which is why I think that if you if you were to grant with this data, I like, think you could do that's it. That's enough to say, like, I need extra money to do these studies that that I'm that we're talking about. Because yeah, this is I think this is if a virologist if this came up in the virology study section, a lot of people would jump on the fact there is no virus data whatsoever. Like there's no there's no virus readouts. You're not titering anything. You don't know you don't actually show the double stranded RNA is in the cell. So you don't know hundred percent that the mechanism of this drug is what you think it is. Like there's a there's a lot missing. I'm but not, you don't think the in vivo sure stuff is, is sufficient for that? I don't, like like to, to I don't show care promise. About in vivo. Stuff. Okay. <laughs> right. I think no, no, that's no, no. going to be a major departure from <laughs> from what I was going to say. But the NIH cares about in vivo stuff, right? If the idea sure. here is a therapy, like the in vitro studies, whatever they're like, you, and I, so I think there think are flaws. I, I think that I, I would be interested to have the opinion of someone who. Uh, who regularly writes and gets funding if they think that this sort of study would be enough yeah, to, that would to be get nice. further funding. Yeah, I, 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 definitely, I definitely don't have the experience to know this. 
I'm not floored by any of this data that's in here. Which is honestly why, you know, it is a really uh, cool idea yeah. and potentially cool application. And it's published in PLOS One, yeah. right? And PLOS One is a good journal. It's an open access journal. I would like to have some of my stuff in PLOS One. At some, I like the idea of it and all of those things. But if the data here were truly groundbreaking and truly rigorous and a full scientific study, there's a reason that it's published here and not in Nature or Science, right? If he found a drug that could be injected into an animal and protect you against all the things that he protected against in vitro. Like if, if he had that, this paper would have flown a little higher than it did, I think. But it's still interesting. And I still think that there's good preliminary data. I just, I don't know, maybe it's the type I, of- I, I think that's I, my point is that, that there's there's enough data here. This, this data is not sufficient for me to say, next time I get a cold, I'm going to inject myself with Dracos. Let's be perfectly clear yeah. here. This is not ready for prime time, but- Just have a hot toddy. That is not enough <laughs> to say that it's not good enough for funding. If I was at the NIH and I saw this data four years ago in a grant, I would say, oh, this looks promising. I'm going to kick a little cash its way, I think. And I wouldn't now, though. I, I wouldn't yeah. now. So that's it's too late. That's the key is that now four and a half years later, if he's going to the public for funding, yeah. that suggests to me that there's some critical problem. And and Kate, when you were talking about like why they did the assays they did, if they didn't have quite enough money, all of that makes sense, except that they in the video, they clearly show that they have a brand new lab space, which is probably pretty expensive. Is that is that an incubator space, though? It might be. They, it looks pretty empty, to be fair. That is true. Yeah. It did look fairly Good. empty. But also the idea that you would raise enough all of the things that he's asking for in this indiegogo campaign is just to show that it's effective against more viruses in vitro which to me is not the important part i agree i totally agree i would so going off this like funding issue i agree i i saw i was i've been thinking about this i agree that like there is enough in this paper to warrant further investigation but i do think that probably what's going on is that the funding climate is just a little too competitive for something that doesn't look like a sure thing something that doesn't look like i already have the paper and the drug fully developed and it works 100%. Can I please have some money now? Which right according but to you could, some you could back off any one of these viruses if you showed efficacy like strong efficacy and you went in and did some standard viral work like kate you're sort of demanding and some really standard immunology like i think kevin and i are looking for on just one of these viruses yep. if you showed it that it was effective but you showed it rigorously against yeah. one of these viruses i think that that should be sufficient to secure funding because then it's an interesting idea it's founded and at least you have some understanding or you demonstrate understanding of how you would go about rigorously testing this in an in vivo system, right? But without that, I totally agree with you, Kevin. I I think that further showing that this thing is going to be effective against every virus in vitro, I don't think that that adds anything. Yeah, it's it's uh, unrealistic and it's not super important, right? I mean, like, stop trying to claim that it's a panacea and just show that it's effective against one or multiple. If you could show that this is effective against every single positive sense strand RNA virus, that alone is huge, right? Like you don't need to say that it's going to work for every single viral disease. We'll save Lindsay Lohan. Chikungunya (laughs) is a positive stranded virus. (laughs) I did not know Lindsay Lohan was infected with chikungunya. Yeah, that's why. How do you know these things, Kate? Um, Lindsay Lohan went to Bali on vacation and then she got chikungunya and she was unable to finish her, what is that thing that you get? Her community service for some Uh. sort of charge that she got. (laughs) Whatever. I love you, Lindsay. (laughs) Oh boy. Sorry about the gunya. 
yeah. That's um, phenomenal. Also, I do want to just say one thing because I, I don't want to get some email. <laughs> I am aware that there is one figure of viral titer, but it is one time <laughs> point. I it's it, it, I would say that's not sufficient. It doesn't count. I, I know there is a viral titer in the paper. Sorry. S- speaking of speaking of email feedback, if you have any email feedback for us, you should send it to either our Facebook page, which is now for real activated. I actually turned Yay! it on. It was supposed to be Kate's job. But okay, I to be fair, I really don't know the internet very well. Yeah, I know okay. everything that's going on with Lindsay Lohan, but I do not understand <laughs> Facebook. So, but... so you can go to our Facebook page and leave a comment, or you can send an email to comments at immunity.org, which I recently activated. I, I got rid of Kate at immunity and Matt at immunity.org because I don't want to pay five dollars a year for it. Get rid of Kevin at I immunity? Didn't I had two email addresses? Oh, interesting. And I left Kevin and I left comments. It's so that he can filter through has happened last. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. by the way, we got this. <laughs> can I, Can does comments come to my personal email? At this point, it doesn't, but it can. Um, yeah, can you forward it to me, please? Sure. Before I get blindsided again by another email. <laughs> <laughs> and the other, uh, the other place that you can go is just to our website, which is immunity.org. And I think it's like slash contact or something. There's a clear button on the website. So, you, And you should send us feedback if you are one of the like 60 people who are subscribed to our podcast. Yeah. Uh, you should definitely. And not just tell me when you're drunk, Mike. Yeah, I know that you're listening right now. Sorry. <laughs> We just creeped out Mike. Yep. Mike's gone. Hi, yeah. Mike. What's up, Mike? <laughs> what so are you that, doing that's, now, Mike? That's a, spe- that's a specific Mike that I know. It's not just... I mean, I figure uh, that's probably also really if, good. If you're good another name, Mike, but... we're not spying on you. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. Does anybody else have any comments for this paper or I, the Indiegogo funding campaign? I did want to... I did, I did really enjoy... So if we are going to go to a crowdsourced model of science funding... I really did like his, even though I don't really agree with the entire like rationale behind behind the therapy, I thought his video was adorable. I agree I entirely. He, it was hilarious. When I looked when I looked at all the photos, he's like the stereotypical nerd. Oh my goodness. And the video yeah, started out as being like the stereotypical nerd. And then it was actually super at charming. MIT. Yeah, it was very, oh, it was very really, sweet. Yeah. I liked him. The video is wonderful. Yeah. And I I actually haven't looked recently at the numbers of what he's raised. He's raised fifty thousand dollars. Okay, that'll fund some mouse experiments. That will fund a mouse experiment. Maybe a mouse experiment. Okay, yeah, I was just about to say, really, that's that's actually not a lot. No, it's it's not. But so what like, he's maybe, not like asking for mice? mouse experiments. He's asking to test it in cell culture against like a thousand new viruses, which it'll do that. Yeah, but you know, if I were recommending, I would not recommend you giving money to this effort. It's not going to cure all viruses. I would say or go go give, ahead and give all the money you want. I personally probably would not because yeah. I'm keeping I would all my say money. From if my you give $20,000, his reward for $20,000 is what can we do for you? So you could give $20,000 and then uh, fly to MIT and then say, here are the mouse experiments I would like you to do. Awesome. Or you could just be like on an NIH study section and fund millions of dollars if it were yeah, actually promising, yeah. if he wrote a grant. I don't know. The other the other thing that I thought maybe, and I don't know enough about the business side of this stuff to say this with any certainty, but like, is it possible that if he wants to develop it for, for industry purposes, for actually selling and making a profit on it, would NIH preclude any of that or? No, 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 no. no. Okay. Nope. So long as he's not like taking NIH money and manufacturing the drug mm. for selling, then- no, the NIH will fund 
the research leading up till the manufacturing. Okay. I well, learned then that I have from no George idea. Church in ethics. Sorry, I had to take ethics recently. Just, you know, the general, like, please don't cheat and don't forge data. It makes us all look bad. Uh-huh. Okay. You're all ethical now. Uh-huh. Kind of a letdown. Yes. Did they not make you take that early on? No, they do. <laughs> There's now really. a requirement that, that students that joined after a certain year, I think basically Kate's was the first to do this, that no, you Jordan. have to take it like oh, yeah. every two years or something uh, like that. It's not two years. It's like every four or three years. Okay. So hopefully... Okay. Fingers crossed. I don't have to take it for a third time. Yeah. Good news. I mean, I, I like ethics. It's fun. I huh. just wish we talked about like social issues in research. Like Not we did like, on Audio Immunity episode 13. Yeah. More yeah. like that. I mean, you could really expand it into something very interesting. You know, we have a department of bioethics at the Harvard Medical School. Why don't they run ethics class? They That's need people. Point. Why aren't they doing it? They have all sorts of interesting things, could, and, like interesting talks. I could I, explain to you based on what I now know about the Harvard bureaucracy from my job as a curriculum fellow. <laughs> but that would take an entire hour-long podcast, and I don't okay. think it's worth it. So, so I'm not the only person who had this idea. But like, wait, we do have an ethics department right here on the campus. It's not even that it's like far away in Cambridge, where I never go. <laughs> it's actually right next to me. Why don't you just run the class? Mm-hmm. Oh, well. Oh, well. You should just start walking into random offices and asking questions as if they're running the class. Just make that <laughs> assumption and then see if it all just materializes in front of you. Yeah. Yeah, that seems no, like a recipe good for people. success. I bet they'd be okay with it. Yeah. <laughs> I do go to their to their uh, seminars. Do they have food? They don't have food, in fact. Oh, they just have okay. like really that means interesting... They, must be good. <laughs> they, they sometimes have like kind of crazy... I mean, crazy is a harsh word. I don't want to say crazy. But they have people with like very abnormal points of views that I'm not routinely exposed to that I find very entertaining. It's fun. Right. It's, it's, a good, it's good. <laughs> with that, I think we should wrap it up. This has been Audio Immunity episode 15, which we recorded less than two weeks after our last episode was posted, which is huge for us. Uh, and hopefully it's going to get posted pretty quick. I don't know if Kate mentioned, this was recorded on Monday, December 15th, 14th. Yeah. Hopefully it will be up within the next couple of days. That's my goal. But you can find us at immunity.org, E-M-M-U-N-I-T-Y.org. You can also subscribe to us in iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. There's RSS links on our website. And if you do listen, please go to iTunes and give us a rating because it's really helpful. You can also go to Facebook, which, as I said, we actually have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash audio immunity. And we can talk to you back now, which is awesome. Uh, you can my, like us there. My Facebook is now like exploded. I feel so popular because I sign nice. on and I have like 15 new notifications. I'm like, hey, what's up? Sweet. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, comments at immunity.org or comment directly on our website and our contact page. And finally, the music at the beginning and the end was composed by Rachel Reinick, who is my wife and who is, by the way, uh, performing at the Lizard Lounge Open Mic Challenge tonight, which doesn't help any of you that are listening right now yeah, because I, it will I have already passed. you were going to put a real date to um, like actually like get yourself to get the sound. She is performing in February on a date that I don't remember, and I will look it up. (laughs) To be named later. And I will put it on the website and also on our next episode, which will hopefully be recorded uh, in the next couple of weeks, because we're trying to be responsible podcast hosts. Are we on Stitcher? You know, I don't know if we're on Stitcher. We should be on Stitcher. Apparently that's a Kate, since you gave up on (laughs) Facebook, why don't you try to get us on Stitcher? I'll take care of Facebook now. I got it. I got it. I got it. Now that I've done all the legwork? Yeah, okay. Okay, you hit publish. You know, like, Let's not. Let's not really like. Get, get I also created the page. Here. I put I'm up the banner image. Over hit and publish. I put all the posts on. Uh, give me some fucking credit. I deserve it. <laughs> and we'll see you post. next time. I can do the posts. <laughs> see you later, guys. Bye. <laughs>